0: My name is Neil Harrison. I work at the University of the West of England. This presentation was going to be today with uh, with Richard Waller as well, my colleague, but Richard unfortunately has been tied up with other things. Um, just by way of a couple of bits bit of introduction, my own uh, history working in widening participation goes back to the mid-1990s when I was busy running Taster Days and student mentoring programmes before they were called Taster Days or student mentoring programmes. Um, and so I've had that, that 20 years of involvement within the sector. I also worked with both Aim Higher West and Aim Higher Southwest as well. So there's a my, my, my involvement, my engagement in this, my interest in this goes back quite some time. Yet the other thing to just mention is that this uh, the project that I'm going to talk about today um, is actually funded by the SRHE under their awards program. So I'm, um, we're very grateful for the, the financial support they provided uh, to us uh, as well. So that's why the SRHE logo is at the bottom there too. Okay. So historical context. I'm not going to dwell on this because most of you in the room will be very, very familiar with this. The, we still have a very large social class gap in higher education um, that there has been policy attention over, over the course of at least 15 years, possibly longer. The AIM Higher as a national program uh, saw over, around a billion pounds invested over the course of its eight years and that uh, since the invention of access agreements in 2006, universities are spending around 100 million pounds a year on, um, on uh, outreach and widening participation activities. However. What, we, what we've seen uh, is some positive news and some less positive news, um, so on the, the graph here which is from uh, official uh, biz source, data sources, the blue line shows uh, young people the participation rate of young people not eligible for free school meals, the red line those eligible for free school meals. And What we can see is that both lines rise over that period, there has been success moving from 13% here to 21% in terms of the youth participation rate for young people receiving free school meals. However, when you look at the gap, the gap has not shifted very much at all. There was a 20% gap in 2005-06, and in 2011-12, that's an 18% gap. So there's been progress, but that progress has not seen a great deal of narrowing. So so why no wider? Um, Well... What we do, seem to have seen is the progress has been very heavily uh, focused on, on lower status institutions, a uh, piece of work I did uh, a couple of years ago, but also work that uh, Ralph and Croxford have done as well, looking at how those the social mix of different universities have changed and the, the extent to which that stratification is embedded within the, within the sector. Uh, Vicky Bolivar's work as well has also looked at uh, lack of uh, progress amongst elite universities over that period of time. So why haven't two decades of WP pro- policy and practice made more of, uh, of a difference. and I think a major step forward has come over the, just the last few years um, with the work that's been done uh, primarily through the Institute of Fiscal Studies but by others as well focusing on being able to link and track individuals over a long period of time. and Particularly the work that Claire Crawford has, has done really puts this into sharp focus and what Claire has calculated um, is that Nearly all of that that difference in participation rates is constructed by the age of 16. Half of it is constructed by the age of 11. So the differences that we are seeing in terms of HE participation are constructed much earlier within uh, the young person's life course. And I think this perhaps was a bit of a shock for WP practitioners uh, and for academics working in the field as well. I think there was always an assumption that much was much later. There was much more that, that could be done later within within the life course. So these differences in level two qualifications, primarily GCSEs, but also, of course, vocational equivalents, uh, to account for 95% of the difference in the, in the participation gap, and then level three qualifications, A-levels and their equivalents, are performing a sorting function, which young person gets to go to which institution. And seeing that, then, from the other end of the telescope, there's actually some, some older work, uh, largely done out of the uh, Higher Education Policy Institute, again, with others as well, which is where we've known for some time now that the proportion of young people going on uh, to he with st- any set level of qualification is very similar regardless of social background, however you measure social background. So, for example, those with 2 or more A-levels, 80 to 85% are progressing, regardless of background. And that's been stable over a period of 15 years now. Um, and then work looking at aspirations increasingly is demonstrating that asp- there is not a huge social class difference either in terms of aspirations for young teenagers. And work that uh, Jeff Whittier and Annette and others uh, did recently looked at some of the studies that have been done into levels of aspiration. Uh, and com- comes back to this idea about about an, uh, an aspirational deficit. So that's the historical concept. So that, that'll be familiar to most of the people in the room, but I thought it was useful just to, to look at it very quickly. So the project I'm going to be talking about today is called the AIMS project. And AIMS stands for Assessing Impact and Measuring Success. Um, and we've been working on this since uh, the middle of, of uh, 2014. And as I say, it was uh, part <coughs> of um, one of the uh, research awards given by, by the society. And what we've been aiming to do is to take a historical perspective, looking at ideas about what works over a period of time from the AIM higher years, so going back to 2004, right the way through to the present time. Looking at uh, the views of managers and practitioners working in the field. We've we've sought to problematize the idea of uh, collecting credible evaluative evidence, and I thought there was a lot of um, linkage there with what Penny was saying in the introduction, the quote that you used there really resonated with, 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 with some of the work that we've been doing around this. And then seeking to then provide some recommendations for future practice out of that. So we're currently uh, midway through the project. There is, there is a third phase um, which is yet to come. Uh, so this is a sort of progress report to date on the first two strands. So strand one we uh, undertook telephone interviews with all uh, nine former regional uh, directors of Aim Higher, and also the former national director of Aim Aim Higher. Um, and we talked to them about their experiences. We talked to them about um, what they thought worked, what they thought didn't work, how they knew that ideas about success, how they formulated their own ideas about se- success. And what was interesting is it was that although most of them have actually retired formally, most of them have also kept some sort of linkage. With the with the sector, and so they've been able to be give us um, insights into how things have changed since Aim higher as well. So that period from 2011 through to 2015, which we've also found quite helpful. So that's strand one. You'll see uh, as we go through the data that uh, I've labelled things either strand one or strand two, so you can see where the where the data has come from. then strand two was it was an online questionnaire of current serving WP managers within institutions in England. Um, we invited 151 institutions to take part and 57 uh, responded. So that's a, about a 38% response rate. Uh, and you can see the response rates varied vary slightly by institutional type. Um, and that was undertaken, uh, that, that <coughs> closed uh, back in December. So since December, we've been analysing uh, the data from the two strands of this project. The third strand is that we're going to um, undertake what's called a Delphi study with an expert panel to then to try and tease out some more of the of the information and the data that we we have, so in the thematic analysis that we've done between the uh, uh, the two strands of the of the Ames project, we've come up with four themes, and those four themes are the ones that I'm going to focus on on today. Um, and then we're going to I'm going to end up with some speculation about some of the ways forward. What I see are some of the key questions that need answers, and then my suggested answers to some of those questions. And and in a sense, that's, that's hopefully where the discussion will begin, and, and you can take me to task for my ludicrously simplistic answers. Um, so, the four themes partnerships versus competition that's the thing I'm not going to talk about very long today because of, of limited time, and it's not that relevant to this particular uh, uh, seminar. Aspirations against attainment, ideas around targeting deadweight and leakage, monitoring, valuation, and proof. So, they're pretty straightforward and, and obvious ones. So let's so the, f- the first theme then is partnerships versus competition, and the, what the aim higher participants told us in strand one was how that and the, the, the the finances and the policy space enabled them to experiment to find new ways of being to forge new uh, ways of of, of um, achieving collaboration bet- uh, between institutions within institutions and outside of the HE sector itself, um, and that was seen as being a, a massive step forward. And what, what was described to us was this rather complex model. But over here we have the HEI that was able to develop these horizontal partnerships with other HEIs and other forms of provider and other forms of, of, of educational organisation. But also these vertical partnerships with schools and FE colleges. Um, which is pretty obvious stuff. Um, but also, the other interesting thing that came out of that was the idea of common calls with other regional uh, initiatives that were focused around inequality, social justice, around unemployment, around skills def- deficits, and so on. And that seemed to be a, a very important uh, aspect of the AIM higher years in a number of the regions, not all. Um, and what has been interesting for us is then using the, tool, using the data from both strands of the project. And what we've seen, really, is that the, these horizontal partnerships have broken down and this idea of common cause has broken down, so we're left with, the, with just the vertical mm-hmm. partnerships remaining. This data, I should say, is collected before the uh, National Networks for Collaborative Outreach, so in a sense that that isn't part of the policy horizon that I'm mm-hmm. describing here. Of course, that, that makes a significant difference. So that was what was seen as being the the, the advantages of of Aim High. I've got a lot of quotes. I won't read them all out there on the the sheets, but also I'll I'll give you a second just to look at them while I'm talking. So there was this idea that there was a glue that held things together, that the funding provided a glue, and that over time, that that glue has started to to fall away. And where we've ended up with is a path of least resistance where there are easy gains. where institutions have retreated back into safety, safe activities, and also uh, in terms of safe geography as well. Um, there was a sense from a number of the uh, participants in our study that coverage in, in rural areas, coastal spelt wrongly, and um, areas of deep deprivation were not getting the coverage that they had done five years ago. Um, and what was also interesting uh, in terms of the data that we have from contemporary WP managers is that the partnerships they talked about were no longer this diverse range of horizontal and common cause partnerships, but now almost exclusively vertical partnerships with schools and particularly with those that will work with us. Okay. And what, what we're beginning to see is a, in the same way in which uh, Ralph and Croxford's work has looked at stratification within admissions policies and admissions uh, profiles, We've also seen out this data of stratification in terms of WP approaches as well. That with the colleges that were within our study, they were focused on increasingly on recruiting from their own level 3 students. So it was about supply chain within the institution. Um, fending off a competition from particularly post-92 universities, but but others as well. In Within uh, pre-92 universities, it was seen as being almost... Uh, an attempt to keep local applicants local which I think was quite an interesting idea um, that there was a a relatively finite pool of people who have the qualifications that were necessary for entry and the important thing was being able to maintain one's market share of that group of people so the idea of of saying why don't you come to your local institution seems seems to be quite an interesting new idea and then in the middle of the post 92's their discourse was blurring the lines between what we would see as recruitment activity and widening participation activity, using this term outreach, which seemed to become um, um, a means of acceptably blurring those two lines, with some of the uh, post-92 respondents to our survey talking about how all they needed to do to, to achieve their WP targets was to increase their intake from the local area. It wasn't about uh, necessarily about extending access or, or targeted activity there was this idea of equality of access. Everybody locally is WP, so we just need to do more. And I thought that, that, that stratification for me was, was quite interesting. So as I say, that, that's, that's, I'll leave, leave that, that slide. That was the first theme, not particularly relevant today, but I think is nevertheless interesting context. The second theme is around aspirations and attainment. I think this is where it gets more more relevant. And starting again with the historical context, and uh, the AIM Higher directors talked about how originally they had started seeing this as an aspiration raising exercise, addressing what was perceived to be a working class deficit in terms of aspirations, either aspirations in the round or aspirations specifically for higher education. But that that changed through time. Well, two regions that interestingly saw it as being an, uh, an attainment raising activity from the outset, but the other seven did not. They saw that as something which was effectively pushed on them as time went on. I thought the quote at the bottom there is quite useful. If they don't get the qualifications, it doesn't matter how much they want to get here, it's not going to happen. And I think that was, sets things in, in the context uh, of the, uh, the reality of, of university admissions. And there's this I- idea of a reinforcing relationship between aspiration and attainment which I think we need uh, as, a, as, a, as a sector of researchers to problematise far more than we are doing at the moment, and some of that comes out of the, of the data uh, from, from this study. The idea that aspiration, the, the having long-term goals, long-term achievable goals, gives you an intrinsic motivation towards success, accumulating credi- uh, credentials, accumulating qualifications in order to reach that goal, and that simultaneously increased attainment leads to more about the ability to achieve the goals, to see more doors open to you. So, uh, open to you. However, the evidence base for those two relationships, that, that lovely iterative recursive relationship, is not strong. And I think that's something that, with, with which we'll, I'll come back to again later, and which for me is one of the unresolved questions. What attainment are we talking about? Whose aspirations? What are they aspiring to? And to what extent are those, those links real? And this was put into sharp focus in the data from WP managers, current WP managers. So what the, what the graph here um, shows is the percentage of institutions believing their activities were very successful in terms of a number of different outcomes. So you can see at the top here that our respondents felt they were very good at improving knowledge about HE, creating aspirations mm-hmm. for HE, and develop, dispelling negative st- stereotypes, 50-54%. Of institutions thought their activities were very successful at those, at those outcomes. But then you look down here at improving attainment at Key Stage 5 and improving attainment at Key Stage 4. 2% which is one institution thought they were good at improving attainment at Key Stage 4 and 4% four two institutions thought they were good at Key Stage 5. So there's a real sense from the WP managers and leaders within our sample that they their activities were very strong around aspiration, but they weren't seeing that link through to attainment. They did not feel that their activities were very successful. Um, Interestingly, in the middle here, you also have creating aspiration for graduate careers, a specific form of aspiration. Only 15% of institutions thought they were very successful at, at that, as distinct from aspirations for higher education as an abstract concept. What was even more interesting than that data, I thought, was that um, <coughs> between a quarter and a third <coughs> of institutions felt that actually attainment was not even in scope for their activities. And that was across all institutional types, with slight variations in the percentages, but there was no difference between uh, uh, institutional type. So it wasn't just they thought they were doing, doing it and doing it not very well. A third of institutions didn't even think it was part of their, of their job. And we also asked within the survey, which activities do you think are most successful? And we saw a very clear bifurcation between those that were successful in terms of aspiration and those that were successful in terms of attainment. So for aspiration, it was the traditional set of summer school's taste-to-day school visits. But for attainment, it was master classes, revision sessions, mentoring, and access and compact arrangements. There's, there was a sense in which the two sets of activities were quite distinct, had two different uh, purposes and two different um, <coughs> types of, of success of, uh, associated with them. What I thought was again was very interesting is that very few institutions from memory, I think it's three or four talked about any careers-based or careers-led activities in terms of success. What we don't know is whether they thought <coughs> institutions did them and thought they were unsuccessful. Or whether institutions simply were not doing them. We suspect the latter, but we don't have the data to support that. So returning back to aspirations, what what what, what is that t- what do we know about aspirations for higher education? Well, on the one hand I presented the the, the information at the beginning that it's qualifications that define nearly all of the the profile in terms of access to higher education, participation in higher education. And yet, that was th- those were placed out of scope by around a third of institutions. There were very few institutions made a link between pupil premium, which is the previous government and indeed the current government's main policy tool for improving attainment for disadvantaged young people. Very, uh, that link was missing. Only a couple of institutions talked about work with pupil premium children or linking up with or even uh, providing um, um, pupil premium activities. On the other hand, the AIM Higher interviews that we did going back to the AIM Higher period five, ten years ago talked very strongly about these linkages with the other initiatives that are going on, things like the London Challenge, things like Education Action Zones. So there was a sense in which that, that disconnection has happened um, not just in terms of um, what the, uh, the activity regionally, but actually in terms of policy linkage between institutions and schools as well. Um, the other thing that, that, that occurred to us was that where institutions were talking about their activities that were successful, a lot of those that they saw as being successful for aspiration raising were actually successful for recruitment and that there was, again, this blurring of, of, of lines between what, what is done for marketing purposes, for supply chain management, and what is done for social justice and equality uh, reasons. We'll, we'll, say we'll come back to these, and I'll pull these together t- towards the end. A third theme, then, that, that, that came out of our study thus far is around targeting leakage and dead weight. Um, and targeting was seen as something which was one of the big challenges for Aim Higher, not surprisingly, but also one that where the former Aim Higher directors felt that had been solved, which I thought was quite interesting. They felt that when polar and low participation neighbourhoods were created and were, were developed and were disseminated through the sector, that that had worked to solve the problems around targeting. There was now a tool, and so it says here. There are questions about validity, but as long as it's used carefully, and not mechanically, it is effective. And we can see that coming through in the data here. So this is from the online survey, looking at what institutions are doing now. And this is about the particular WP markers that institutions are using to target their activities. So not the milestones necessarily that are in their access agreements but how they select the schools and or young people uh, in order to to target their activities. And you can see here that the second column is LPNs and POLAR, and it's near ubiquitous. There's just a couple of institutions, some of the colleges and and one or two of the post-92 institutions that do not use LPNs or POLAR to to target their activities. You can see a range of other markers there, and you see some quite interesting differences. So the pre-92 institutions are much more interested in parental occupation, parental education, and free school meals, whereas the post-92s are more interested in these markers like ethnicity, whether or not somebody is a a, a care leaver, or whether or not they are disabled. So there were were distinct differences in there. But one particular one that I think is interesting is, is free school meals, and this comes back to the point I was making a few seconds ago about linkages with pupil premium. Of course, Pupil Premium is directed to those young people that are eligible or have been eligible over the last six years for free school meals. So this is an individualized marker that uh, schools have access to that tells you instantly, and with a a degree of validity, and there there are questions about the validity, but nevertheless, it is the main tool now being used by government, and that data, data is readily available. Yet it's only being used by around two-thirds of institutions to target activity. I think that's really interesting. And When you look at colleges, I should have said at the beginning, the the category of college here covers both FE colleges providing HE courses, but also some of the specialist uh, college providers in terms of the arts and agriculture and so on. They are much less likely to be using free school meals in order to target their activity. More likely to be using uh, markers like parental occupation or ethnicity as, as their means of targeting their activity. A second chart, I promise this won't be death by and um, there's not that many in here. Um, well, the other question we asked, we asked about usage, but then we asked about confidence. And we asked about, did, did the institution or did the, the, the uh, lead within the institution have any concerns about the quality of the data, of the markers that they were using? And the interesting thing here was that Polar was seen as being available and reliable, so the first two blue bars here. So there was data that you could get hold of and it, it measured something, but there were strong concerns about validity. Was it measuring what, what we thought it was measuring? And precision, was it enabling people to identify individuals? <laughs> so actually, even though the use of, of, uh, of Polar data was near ubiquitous, Sixty percent of of uh, institutions were worried about the, the level of precision that it provided. Conversely, free school meals were seen as being much more valid and precise an indicator and means of identifying individuals. So I've just I've just drawn those let's say those two out because I think they provide a, a useful and interesting uh, uh, difference here. So. What we then did within the survey is we posed some ethical dilemmas. Gave people choices to, 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 to choose from, a choice A and a choice B, and, and then a, uh, people could say equal as well. And one of them we asked about was about um, whether or not it mattered whether a disadvantaged person was coming from an advantaged or disadvantaged area. And we asked that question in two slightly different ways. And what we found was that there were some quite strange beliefs or behaviours, there's an extent to which what was being reported to us was, was a belief or a behaviour. But, but 60% of, of, of institutions felt that recruiting somebody from a disadvantaged area was a success regardless of whether or not that individual was disadvantaged. 60% of institutions thought that if you recruited from an LPN, that's a success. 53% believe that recruiting an advantaged student from a disadvantaged area was more important than the other way around. They, 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 over half of institutions felt that it was more important there to their institution to recruit an advantaged student from a disadvantaged area than a disadvantaged student from an advantaged area. We didn't expect this. I mean, in a sense, we were probing for it, but we didn't expect the, the extent to which that, that came out. So we've got some perverse incentives there. And, and what seems to be driving this, I haven't presented the data here because I didn't say want to do death by graph, but um, if you look also at the usage of milestones, so, so the extent to which institutions are setting themselves targets within their access agreements, LPNs and Polo again are, are near ubiquitous. There, there were one or two institutions that claimed not to be using them, and in a sense, I don't, even, I don't really believe them either. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they were using them in some form or another. But what was happening was actually LPNs were driving ideas of success for WP activities for over half of the institutions who mm-hmm. replied to our survey. No. Because they are the HESA benchmarks. Because they're the HESA benchmark, they're also what uh, what uh, offer will come and knock on your door about yeah. if, you're, if you're not making. Mm-hmm. So it's cr- but really quite interesting. That to me is p- it's a perverse mm. incentive where it's better for you to recruit an advantaged person from a poor area than a poor person from an advantaged area, mm. very crudely. Okay, the other thing was schools. Now obviously through for, for the AIM higher period and, and to some extent at least continu- continuing onwards, The targeting of individuals has been mediated through schools. So certainly in my own area during the AIM higher years, the idea was if we identified the right schools, then the schools could identify the right individuals, and therefore that targeting message would feed on through. What we found in this study of current practitioners is, is that around a third were only somewhat confident, or worse, not confident, that the schools were nominating the right young people. And some quotes there to back that up. Schools have their own agendas as to who might benefit. There's some unscrupulous teachers who wanted to use AIM Higher activities, sorry, WP activities for the benefit of their advantaged and gifted and talented cohorts rather than their disadvantaged cohorts. Um, we've had instances where school coordinators have become angry, where they've declined an offer an activity when, we've re- when they've refused to engage in targeting disadvantaged learners. Mm. So there's this, a sense that that mediation of targeting also is still questioned. And it was questioned during the, uh, during the um, AIM higher years. And Liz Thomas uh, wrote around, around this a very, very long time ago. But this still remains an unresolved problem. And so uh, where we've gone with this is that um, this idea from the AIM <coughs> higher directors that targeting had been solved, I think, has been overstated. And what we're also seeing is, is new dilemmas emerging. There's extensive evidence for, for leakage. If you go back to one of the quotes earlier, they talked about they, people they shouldn't have targeted and people they didn't need to target. And I think it's quite interesting to, to, to make that distinction. Leakage is people we shouldn't have targeted. Advantaged people who are taking advantage of what is intended to be a social justice intervention. That reinforces disadvantage by giving more to the advantaged. The, the kind of sister concept to that is dead weight, those we didn't need to target. How do we distinguish between those that are already on that conveyor belt, which Crawford's work and, and others work have, have demonstrated, that don't need the intervention, from those that are not yet on the conveyor belt but could be with an intervention? And I think that that is a key unresolved problem and may explain or begin to explain some of why years of policy intervention and the investment of resource has not yielded the the, the the change, the sea change that it was intended to do. And then the final point there is just this conflict between, again, social justice and recruitment outcomes. When, when given a di- dilemma, 48% of institutions prioritized applications to their own institution over applications to higher education in general. So um, half of institutions felt that it was more their activities were around generating applications for their institution. The, the remainder equally weighted them. Okay, thing four, how am I doing for time? About half a for the grand. Perfect. Um, sorry, bit, I'd say it's a bit of a romp today, but uh, there we go. Um, we, one of the things with this project is we've been overwhelmed with the amount of data that we've actually collected. Uh, it's been fantastic, and it's it's also led to problems of trying to digest it and present it in a form that which is uh, which is usable and useful to people. So, whereas the aim higher directors that we interviewed, former aim higher directors that we interviewed, felt that targeting had been solved, although say we now question that, what they really didn't feel had been solved at all was evaluation, and that's why I know a lot of you are here today, and and so that's all we'll focus on now. And. They, they, came, they had a number of reasons for that. How do you find that light bulb moment? Why do we have practice, practitioners doing evaluation? They're not trained out evaluators, why are they, why are they doing that? It takes a while for, for in, uh, initiatives to bed in. What's the time scale for evaluation? How long does it take before you can, you can claim that an evaluation is starting to, to perform? And. What, what a number of them talked about were instances where they felt the evaluation was even counterproductive. And I thought these were quite, quite fascinating, really, because it runs counter to the, to the prevailing uh, paradigm. In the first instance there, the, the argument is that the more evaluation went on during the AIM higher years, the more that there was a focus just on the measurable, not on the successful activities began to be boiled that the portfolio of activities being offered by aim hire and by institutions went from being diverse interesting stimulating to measurable so it narrowed down that width not successful but measurable what could we measure what were their tick boxes for what were their ways of, of saying you know claiming amount of engagement and then that lead, lead, these all these quotes are all from three different people There's <coughs> a drop-off in attendance at at um, uh, a, a partnership meetings. So this is from practitioners. So because of the tinkering, which is being led by the, the evaluative imperative, practitioners were actually absenting themselves. So the partnership start to, started to break down because the portfolio started to, collect, to, to crash in. There was less room for innovation, less room for experimentation, less room for new approaches. So people who had previously been at the table, engaged and innovating, left the table. And I think that one of the most compelling quotes here is, is the last one, which is that this, the particular uh, regional director who gave us this quote, their philosophy from the outset was about embedding AIM higher activities within schools. And what they argued, I think very convincingly, is that the better they got at that integration process, mm-hmm. the harder it was to demonstrate impact. Because the aim higher activities became part of the warp and the weft of the school activities themselves. They influenced curriculum, they influenced pedagogy, they influenced careers guidance, they influenced the ethos of the school in some instances. So, that the better aim higher got at its objective, the harder it was to, uh, to isolate an aim higher effect, an aim higher impact, because it was just part of what successful schools in that area were doing. What do institutions currently do? So we asked um, across a range of different um, types of evaluative process, what, what, what do you do on a rarely, occasionally, frequently, never basis? And very crudely running from simplistic on the left to complex on the right. So from questionnaires with pupils or teachers through to pseudo experiment and randomised controlled trials. And you get the pattern that you would imagine that you would do that frequently, most frequently used, questionnaires, longitudinal tracking and time series analysis, the, the very light turquoise bars. And over here on the never side, pseudo experiment, randomised controlled trials. Although there were instances of both institu- institutions who were using those frequently. Um, so I think that, that's, that's interesting in and of itself. Um, so there's a sense in which there... There was diversity um, between institutions as well um, in terms of um, those that favoured particular types. And very, very crudely, higher status institutions were more likely to favour more complex forms of evaluation. Does it work? So we've got these activities. Interestingly, two thir- only two thirds of, of institutions were confident in the evidence base that underpinned their activities. Um, some variation in that by, by institutional type, but not a great deal. And 91% wanted to in, improve their practice. And I'm guessing that's why some people are here today as well. And there a, couple, a couple of quotes which I thought were, were quite useful here. The idea that ev- evaluation strategies should be about institutional change, not to necessarily focused purely on... The activities themselves. So again, contextual. Coming back to that quote you used, Penny, uh, contextualising it in a a wider context, a political context. But also the idea of um, time, time and resource constraints. That there are people would like to be doing more interesting forms of evaluation, but the institutional context and the national context don't allow them to do it. Um, Longitudinal studies are excellent, but time-consuming and (coughs) impractical. to be done on a regular basis. And then we move on to a slightly different question. So after asking institutions what they did do, we asked them what they thought was the most reliable. Slightly different question. Not what what do you do, but what would you like to do uh, in an ideal world, perhaps. And what we see here, and this perhaps is is, uh, music to the ears of of the heat uh, tracker people, is the longitudinal tracking came out very strongly as being the... uh, Most what's considered to be the most reliable form of evaluative evidence. Pre-92 universities were were quite likely to to look at activities over here on the right-hand side and the colleges were more likely to be looking at more simplistic uh, approaches over there on the left-hand side. Interestingly, there's a bit of spike for post-92 institutions on time series analysis, which when you unpick the data, seem to be about looking at certain schools' application rates over time. So again, it was supply chain activity, monitoring activity, rather than necessarily a WP monitoring activity. So longitudinal approach seems being most reliable. We also asked people for, to provide um, uh, qualitative data here as well, and what we found was there was a conflation of monitoring and evaluation. They were seen as being the same thing. I thought that was really interesting that good evaluation was was simply good monitoring. That if if we know who's coming through activities, who's attending things, who we're influencing, which schools, that's that's good evaluation. I think that's that's a problem. Wasn't obvious, despite this confidence in longitudinal analysis, how that will deal with the dead weight problem. How you're isolating those young people that wouldn't have gone without the intervention from those that were going anyway. The absence of, of control. That's something, we, again, I'll come back to in a, in a second. But there was considerable pushback from a, a number of institutions in a, in a number of different ways. I thought this quote was quite interesting. We often go on to the back foot when they're challenged. But we have plenty of evidence, but too little analysis and too little articulation between data sets. And I thought that drew, drew a very interesting distinction between data, evidence, and analysis. And I, I, I had a... That, 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 fits very nicely with some of my own experiences within the sector Um, and then they talked about the UCAS problem as they put it and I used this quote earlier but I've added an an extra bit on uh, to to make it complete so how do you measure that light bulb moment when ultimately that ultimately led to that person going to university when you don't actually know who did decide to go on to university and I think that is a, a key issue referred to as the UCAS problem by a number of institutions uh, currently, where they simply don't know what is happening to the students that are engaging in their programs at the end of that program. And the point that was made very strongly by, by, as I say, by by quite a few institutions is it's very difficult to evaluate when when you're missing the outcome measure. Okay, so I've got five, six, seven minutes left. (laughs) Excellent. So, what what I've done now is I, I, well, just to summarise, then I've got five questions that I want to see us answer. So, this terminology around outreach is blurring these lines between supply chain management and social justice activity. Institutions don't believe they're influencing, significantly influencing young people's attainment. Confused missions potentially around aspiration activity. Is it about one's own institution? Is it around HE in general? Is it about the idea of being a graduate? Is it about an, a graduate career? Is it about a graduate life? Um, targeting approaches, as we saw particularly with LPN, can, can create some perverse incentives, perverse ideas about what is a success. And we still have problems with, uh, with, with data um, and how we disentangle. Activities where they're very closely woven into the fabric of a school. Okay, so my five questions that I think need answers, and I'm I'm going to propose answers to each of these questions, or at least some ideas around each of these questions. How do we identify those not flowing into the pool, but who could do with intervention? So who are those young people who at the age of 11, or even younger, we can identify as being there or thereabouts, or having the potential... To get the qualifications that will keep them on that route of five GCSEs at, at uh, the age of 16? Why don't institutions prioritise attainment raising and what could they be doing? How do we reduce or eliminate targeting linkage? Which and whose aspirations need raising? And even with perfect data, and this is the, my own sort of interest, what is the likelihood of proving causal events in a young person's life? And I think that, to me, is an absolutely key issue. So growing the pool, one of the, I think one of the successes of education research over the last 10 years has been the demonstration uh, very strongly of the early and pervasive effects of, of disadvantage on educational attainment. And I think that's, whereas that is known, I don't think it's yet being effectively applied within the sector. We know that, that that disadvantage accumulates from 18 months, perhaps even earlier, and accelerates through, through the life cycle. Yet what we see from the data is actually a retrenchment into working with older and older young people again. So whereas the AIM higher years we saw moving into younger and younger children, that's now moving back up the, the, the scale. More activity is, is, is at the 16 to 18 Uh, age group than was five years ago. So, those institutions that did talk about engagement at Key Stage 2 or Key Stage 3 were glowing about it. They felt that this was some of their most important work. Couldn't measure it in a sense because the timescales were so long, but they felt that that work was was, was their most successful. But it was only a few. It was two, three, four institutions that talked about working with young secondary (coughs) or, or upper primary children. I've argued earlier that more engagement is needed with with pupil premium and with outcome predictors. Not a single institution talks about using Fisher Family Trust predictions, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there are problems around those and and questions, but very widely used by schools and have a value in terms of being able to identify trajectories. Um, and I think the other thing that we need to think about then is how we have this refocus away from the m- most most talented disadvantaged young people to the next tier. How do we reduce that f- dead weight of interacting with people who are already on that convey about who who are already on the river flowing into the pool? So that, that, those are my answers to oh, tentative answers to question one. Question two: How do we raise attainment? Interestingly, aim higher in its latter years, really drove home the importance of of attainment. That came from the guidance that came through from from the Funding Council. Mm -hmm. So you see a very clear shift from the early guidance, 2004-2005, its aspiration raising. By 2008-2009, the word aspiration has disappeared from hefty guidance Mm -hmm. and it's been replaced by attainment. What seems to have happened is that that we're backslid away from that based on the data... That we've, we've collected through this uh, project. That, so, this wisdom of focusing on attainment seems to be there's a risk of it being lost. It seems to be uncomfortable ground for institutions. And their core business is not teaching children, although many institutions, like mine, have an education department who, while they not, may not be experts in teaching children directly, are certainly experts in teaching people to teach children. And you'd like to think that there may be resources and expertise there that could be uh, usefully employed. There are examples of good practice. And we collected examples of good practice around mentoring, around master classes, around revision workshops, uh, around um, activities within uh, particular institutions. I've got a really good example. I can't tell you without giving away the anonymity of it. But in terms of using a, a university's facilities, um, earmarked facilities, which were there to, to help raise the attainment of, of, of local young people. Um, and one of the other key things we talked about in terms of, uh, of qualifications is not just around achieving more qualifications, but the quality of, of, uh, of qualifications. And this has been a drive of the last two governments. has been around, well, are all GCSEs the same? Are all level two qualifications the same? And um, part of Claire Crawford's work shows that it's not just the number, it's also the, the subjects that are being selected as well. So what scope is there for universities to be doing work with 14-year-olds around the choice of subjects that they're making and helping them with that, that career planning process? From the data we've collected, that doesn't seem to be happening. Reducing leakage. As I said earlier, the leakage is a double whammy. It not only takes resources from the disadvantaged, it then gives them to the advantaged. So it's a double whammy in terms of, of social justice goals. I think polar data is to be, needs to be a starting point for targeting, not an end point for milestoneing. And I think this is, a, this is creating these perverse incentives that I t- we talked about earlier. And more work needed with schools to look at these unscrupulous practices that happen often, uh, which makes sense, make institutions question uh, and nervous around the young people that are turning up uh, for their for their activities. If Richard were here, and I don't, I don't think he'll mind me saying, but his own uh, son is actually included within uh, the WP activities for his local school, because of the area in which Richard lives. That is clearly leakage of um, of resources from disadvantaged young people to advantaged young people. And I thought that, I think that's a, a an interesting example to use. Yeah, uh, it's an anecdote. but what our data tells us is a, it's not a mm. sole anecdote. Um. And then I've, I've talked about the use of free-school meals to, uh, as a targeting mechanism. It isn't, isn't perfect, but at least it's individualized. Okay, um, question four, last two slides. Um, we need to go back to this relationship between aspirations and attainment. We've assumed that there's this lovely virtuous circle, but actually that's where the evidence base is not, is not yet strong. What is the link between having long-term goals the planning horizons that you're able to, to employ, and the different forms of motivation that those create for you. To what extent does having a long-term plan push your attainment as well? Are there other factors that we need to think about? Is it enough just to raise aspirations? Some research uh, is increasingly suggesting that actually there's over aspiration. The more young people aspire to go to university than actually do. We don't have a shortage of aspirations. We have wrong aspirations or too many aspirations or something. Why don't we use graduate careers as a pull? Seems to be a real gap within, within practice uh, these days. What are graduate careers? What, how do you get there? What, how, do they, how will they change your life? That seems to be a, uh, um, a, a shortcoming in, in a lot of practice. The, 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 the pull is, is, is higher education, not what higher, e- higher education can do for you. I think that distinction is quite an interesting and useful one. As many of you will know, the idea of work experience, a key stage four, used to be a statutory requirement on schools, and then the state sector at least, and that was removed three, four years ago. Actually, another piece of research that I've been involved in demonstrates the real value of that type of activity, as again, as a pull into higher education for disadvantaged young people. And again, a couple of institutions talked about work with parental aspirations, and that's again, there was only a small number. But they were really glowing about the success that they had had in working with parents rather than the, the children, or alongside the, the children. and That, again, <coughs> seemed to be a, a small activity. Um, final, final question, then. Rethinking proof. What, what do we need to do to rethink proof? Um, a number of the respondents to our survey um, gave us very, very detailed answers, and we were very, very grateful for those. Um, what that enabled us to do was to draw a distinction between those institutions which were really problematizing the idea of evaluation and, and proof and impact and those that were perhaps not doing and were, were, were seeking relatively straightforward answers. And the most compelling and convincing epistemologies were where they were talking about linking a validative approach to the individual activity and basing that in their knowledge of of educational theory and of educational practice. So it's having the confidence to say we know this activity is good and successful within these terms. So this idea of actually having a stronger theoretical grounding for the activity that you're doing, to know that that has a good basis within whether that's social theory, whether that's within learning theory or, or elsewhere, and then focus on whether that institution is successful within its own terms. And I, I thought that was quite interesting. There was a real sense of reflection from some, um, some practitioners, some managers around that, whereas others <coughs> were, were far less reflective. And I think the other thing, as a, as a statistician um, by background, I think that we also need to maintain a scepticism about inferential statistics and what it can tell us, um, because fun, fundamentally there are a lot of arbitrary features to inferential statistics, and we need to be careful about not... Um, Seeing them as more powerful than necessarily they are, and I think, coming back to a comment I made, uh, made earlier, even with perfect data, what would proof look like if you're having, let's say, even 100 hours of engagement with a young person, how does that feature within the 15,000 hours they spend within the secondary school environment? Mm-hmm. And most interventions will not have 100 hours of contact with a young person. What else is going on? What are their back histories? Coming again back to that quote, that was really useful. I'm going to steal that from you later. OK, and a parting question just to problematise my whole um, talk. Should we actually be pushing young people into a credentialised system? That's what, work, that's what we know works now. Improving their qualifications is what improves participation. But is that actually the right thing that we should be doing? OK, thank you very much. a list of